This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, I'm joined by Greg Schaefer, a new investor in cryptocurrency, who explains why he jumped into this controversial but exciting new frontier. And I'll ponder whether the District of Columbia, a place where I have worked off and on for years, should become the 51st state. And now, The Nexus. Greg Schaefer is a longtime friend and supporter of the Nexus, who lives with his wife and daughter in Northern Virginia. In addition to his many talents, which include his military service, government contracting work, and holding two degrees from American University, Greg is an investor in something I've been hearing of for the last decade, but undeniably don't know a whole lot about, cryptocurrency. We've heard this term and many understand elements of it, but I'd like to explore what this new currency is about and whether it is viable in the long term. Greg Schaefer, welcome to the Nexus. Thanks, Art. Glad to be here. So for the uninitiated, let's just start off by asking, can you mention what cryptocurrency is? I can. It is a very complex topic, as you can imagine, but I'll do my best to just hit the wave tops. And if you have questions, let me know. Cryptocurrency is a digital store of value that runs on blockchain technology. For anyone to understand cryptocurrency, they would need to have a, at least a base understanding of how blockchain works. Very simply put, it's a distributed public ledger. Uh, there are probably some cryptocurrency savvy people out there that will hear me describe this and think that, oh, you know, poke holes in it. But um, simply put, you have a public ledger that you have multiple con computers contributing to. And every time that a transaction is made, the information on that transaction is sent to every node or every computer. And then they all store that information on the ledger that they are building. And then what ends up happening is that the information from all of those distributed ledgers, they, it comes together. Uh, if the, anyone has an error in their ledger, that is picked up and then uh, they, they come to consensus, essentially. So you need to, to commit you know, forgery or fraud on a blockchain network you would need to control at least 51% or greater than 50%, I should say, of all of the nodes on the network to, to gain consensus for whatever fraud you're trying to commit. So the idea is that the larger your blockchain network is, the more nodes that you have contributing to that public ledger, the stronger it is. And so you have, uh, you know, the most popular cryptocurrency right now would be Bitcoin. But there are a lot of alternate options. A lot of people call them altcoins that are coming up in popularity. Ethereum would be a really big one. And they there's a lot of differences in how those blockchains operate. And I won't bore you with all of those details uh, but right now, there are hundreds of cryptocurrencies that people could choose to invest in. And the way that the currency is created is when those nodes that I had mentioned that store those public ledgers, uh, a lot of them are referred to as miners. And you are rewarded with tokens in that cryptocurrency 
for the blockchain that you are helping build and strengthen by mining. And so when someone talks about, you know, I had earned a thousand Bitcoin for mining over the last five years, that means that over time, as they contributed their computer to the network, they were rewarded with tokens that are represented as BTC for Bitcoin. Um, and so the, the idea here is that by contributing your computing power, you are strengthening the network, and then you were rewarded with that digital store of value, which is the cryptocurrency itself. It sounds almost like one big video game. Is that is that accurate? I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to be facetious, but when I hear about earning tokens and mining and all of this sort of thing, um, how is this not like some kind of game? Well, and, and that's a great question, Art. At the end of the day, the U.S. dollar, Bitcoin, Ether, whatever we may look at, they, they represent stores of value, right? And so they're going to have whatever value someone is willing to pay for them. In America, we, well, across the world, we kind of widely agree that one U.S. dollar is equivalent to, you know, whatever you might try to exchange it for. And there's a lot of volatility in the cryptocurrency space right now. I, d I don't think anybody denies that. I do think that over time, there it, it will stabilize as people start to regard it more and more as having value. But, but in terms of being like a video game, uh, I, I think that the first step to understanding why a cryptocurrency has value, you, you have to understand the blockchain technology that is underlying the cryptocurrency. Um, you know, I can understand how with something like Bitcoin, it does seem like a little bit of a video game because you have these miners who are contributing their computers to the network and they're being rewarded with tokens for, you know, for what? For upping their electricity bill, right? And spending money on a, on a more expensive computer so that it can process faster. But there are a lot of other, you know, the altcoins that I had mentioned, there are a lot of other uh, blockchain technologies that are solving real world problems, uh, real estate, medical and medical uh, files, insurance, uh, you know, the, the capabilities are endless. And, it, you know, anyone who's listening, I would encourage them do just a, a quick search on the internet of practical applications of blockchain technology or something to that effect. And you'll see this is not, you know, what, what may have started as kind of an, uh, a fringe movement, you know, a decade ago is very quickly being recognized as something with real world applications. And so truthfully, Art, what I see as the future of cryptocurrency is more along the lines of these, uh, cryptocurrencies that are tied to blockchains that are solving problems, uh, not so much just a cryptocurrency for the sake of serving as a store of value. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I guess for, again, for the uninitiated, I think there is a barrier here to understanding in the sense of can someone who possesses cryptocurrency at this point, like Bitcoin, Go and say, buy a car or buy anything that you would see in like a store. Does that even exist? Certainly. So it, it exists today. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have seen in the news that Tesla recently announced that they would be accepting Bitcoin. So if you had the proper amount of Bitcoin today, you could buy a Tesla. Um, the Dallas Mavericks announced that they'll be accepting cryptocurrency. 
in the form of Dogecoin, uh, D-O-G-E-C-O-I-N. Uh, and I believe that uh, there, there are dozens of other companies that are accepting or in the process of setting themselves up to accept cryptocurrency. And there are some really big advantages to cryptocurrency as a means of exchange. Right now, if I wanted to send you money, there has to be a middleman somewhere in there. There, you know, someone is getting some cut of that exchange from me to you. When cryptocurrency, you know, I guess evolves or reaches a, a more uh, well thought out form, it's going to be to the point where the cost of that exchange is a fraction of a fraction of a penny. And a lot of these businesses that are built on the idea of, you know, taking a chunk of that exchange, uh, like you look at if you were to make a credit card transaction, anyone who owns a business knows that that credit card provider typically takes a percentage, you know, somewhere between one and 5% of the cost of that purchase. With a cryptocurrency setup, that is completely taken out of the equation. Now, I think that the companies that stand to lose from this are, are already starting to take steps to position themselves to still get a cut of a cryptocurrency through smart contracts and other things that they can develop. Um, but, but that's really where the, the practicality of this comes in, that you can make instant transactions with anyone in the world with very little, I, I don't want to say no cost, but very little cost to both parties involved because you're starting to cut out the middlemen involved. Hmm. So what attracted you to becoming an investor? It is very difficult to look away when you see something that is emerging that people are making lots of money off of. Hmm. Uh, just like, just like over the years, you know, people have seen currencies manipulated and other things to make money, or you look at the stock market and wonder how can all of this money exist there, right? I, I come from uh, a very normal middle class Midwestern family and, and always, you know, kind of had in the back of my head, wow, wouldn't it be something to be a, a millionaire or a billionaire, right? It's, it's almost, especially as a kid growing up, difficult to conceptualize. I had started hearing more in social media and even, you know, uh, mainstream media about Bitcoin and the value of it and how much it had risen. And I started thinking, geez, I, if only I could get a piece of that, right? And so I started doing a little bit of research on my own, and I was considering making the jump. But when you don't know where to start, it's difficult. And I'm sure that everyone's experienced that with something in their life. I had a friend over one day, uh, my, my wife, him, fiance, and our kids were all playing. And I mentioned to him, you know, I, I've been hearing a lot about cryptocurrency. What do you know? And he kind of looked left, looked right, you know, like, is anybody listening? And he, he said, look, this, I had, I don't talk to a lot of people about this, but I've, I've got to show you, you know, what I've been able to do over the last few years. And he showed me where his crypto wallet currently is and talked about what he had put in to get there in only a few years. And that was it. I said, wow. <laughs> so, so this thing really is possible. Tell me how to get started. Tell me how to get involved. And I, I, you know, there are a lot of institutions, mainstream institutions, financial financial institutions that are starting to allow their big investors to put some money into cryptocurrency. I think they typically recommend one to two percent, no more than one to two percent of your assets into it because it's very volatile and there's a lot of risk. 
Uh, you know, I'm not one of those that's going all in on cryptocurrency because I'm not willing to take that level of risk. But, you know, having seen some of these tokens that have increased in value anywhere from 10 times to a thousand times over the course of a month, uh, it, it was very hard for me to say no to. Hmm. And so you mentioned that you had others who were investing and they, and they helped encourage you to uh, get involved. Did, do you find that other people, you know, family members, friends, colleagues are jumping into this or is this still something that you're very much an early adopter in your mind? In my mind, I'm not an early adopter, but I can see how to some people who aren't investing in cryptocurrencies or mining cryptocurrencies that I might be an early adopter, right? Um, everything tends to be perspective and relative to the other person when you think in those terms. I, I know quite a few people who invest in cryptocurrencies, friends and family, and you've probably heard the comparison in the past, you know, you don't see many Jeeps on the road until you start driving one. And then all of a sudden you're seeing Jeeps everywhere, right? Well, it's kind of the same thing with cryptocurrency. Um, you know, you, you don't recognize a lot of the language that's associated with the industry until you're in it. And then you start seeing cryptocurrency everywhere. And you start seeing the uh, solutions that blockchain technology uh, you know, the problems in the world that exist that blockchain technology can solve just about everywhere you go. Um, so I, I wouldn't consider myself an early adopter. There's been, I think, Coinbase is probably one of the more recognized exchanges for cryptocurrency. They're actually having, uh, they're, they're going to be able to be traded publicly tomorrow uh, on the stock exchange. Um, you know, it's a very low barred entry now where you used to have a lot of you used to have to have a lot of technical insight and knowledge on how to mine it and how to exchange it and how to make it change hands. Now it's, you know, just as easy as downloading an application on your phone, connecting it to your bank account and deciding what you want to buy and sell. So we've been hearing a lot lately about NFTs or non-fungible tokens. I love that word. What are those? And do you have any? Non-fungible tokens are something that, well, they started about four years ago. I, I think the first NFTs came out in 2017 or 2018, and they've been growing very, very quickly, both in terms of uh, popularity and recognition, and also in terms of value and the amount of money that's being spent on them every year. A non-fungible token is a form of cryptocurrency, uh, and by by the nature of being non-fungible, that means that it can't be exchanged directly or replaced by another cryptocurrency. Uh, not just to say you couldn't exchange like a Bitcoin for an Ethereum because there's a value of those that goes between the two. Um, but an NFT is like a unique token. I mentioned earlier how when mining, you're rewarded with a token. Well, think of an NFT as a token that doesn't have an equal counterpart anywhere in the world. It has a unique identifier built into the code, which makes it very easy to validate 
that you know it's not a duplication or a fraud. And because of the blockchain technology that we talked about earlier, it is stored on many ledgers around the world. And so if anyone were to ever try to fraudulently make an NFT to say that they had the real first version, all of the other nodes would quickly recognize that that's not actually the right one, and it would be rejected from the blockchain. So NFTs have a lot of applications, and uh, it's truly one of those technologies that I still think is only in its infancy. And in addition to, you know, right now it's used a lot for art, digital art. Um, The NBA has actually really taken strides in advancing their use of NFTs. The where, where I see the real value of NFTs is the smart contracts that they can have coded into them that allow things like automated royalties to the creator anytime that that piece of art or whatever the NFT might be for is sold. So for example, art, you could have a picture of yourself with your first guest on the Nexus and you can hmm. make the digital art. You could stamp it as an NFT and then you could have built into the code of that NFT that every time it is sold that you get, you know, you could pick a number, you get 10% of the revenue as a kind of royalty fee for the, for the life of that NFT. And so it's a, you know, it, it represents a really cool way for artists to uh, truly get recognized for the for the item that they're making. And the big problem in the digital space for the longest time is that there was no way to have scarcity among art in the digital world. NFTs allow that scarcity to exist. Um, that way, just like you only have one Mona Lisa, uh, you, you can only have one of each NFT. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I would love actually to do that for the inaugural episode of the Nexus with that we had Eric Kowalczyk, if you recall that he was the Baltimore police captain um, in March of 2019. I think that would be a collector's item. But seriously, I actually did get in, interested in this topic. And I think a lot of people have had a recent interest in cryptocurrency and nfts because all of a sudden you see all these artists and um musicians who because they're not getting revenue during the pandemic are looking for ways to get money to make money and so they're trying to think of what can we sell other than selling all of their recordings which some of them are doing um and nfts are are definitely one of them you know listeners to the nexus will remember i talked about the guy named nathan apodaca a few months ago who was the skateboarder guy on drinking ocean spray um in idaho and listening and singing along to fleetwood max dreams well i got interested in nfts because he's selling that tiktok recording as one and uh that is emblematic of what's happening right now i don't know if it's a fad or if it's just going to be a sign of the the future pretty much well i first of all that is a great uh reference to an nft that uh i remember the episode on nostalgia and thinking back and and that would be a very appropriate nft for you to have art (laughs) um that when it comes to nfts though being a fad i it's all going to come down to what people think has value, just like any kind of art, whether it's digital or physical. Um, you know, I, I compare a lot of this 
to collecting baseball cards, right? Mm. If you have a Babe Ruth rookie card mm. and it's, you know, certified, however, it's only worth what someone's willing to pay for it. And the real question is going to be, what value do people really associate with the unique ID of a video or a picture or a thing when it can be easily replicated to the same quality uh, spread across the same mediums, right? And it's really hard to answer today because, you know, if, if you look back 50 years and think about, you know, the, the very first Star Trek where they had the communicators that, you know, eventually we came to recognize as cell phones, but they didn't have cameras in their communicators. They didn't have access to the internet. They didn't have all the, and so it's, it's very hard for us to imagine what might have value 50 years from now. And so, I don't think that NFTs are going to wind up looking like they do now in terms of what gives them value. But I, I think it is kind of in its infancy stage where 10 years from now, we're, we're going to look back and we're going to say, wow, it makes sense how it got there. But obvious why we weren't able to have the foresight to predict this. So I do have to bring up, though, an elephant in the room, which I know a lot of people, when they hear the word cryptocurrency, start to think. I mean, in the past cryptocurrency has had a bad reputation for being outside the banking and government institution world and therefore being ripe for criminal dealings. I mean, Bitcoin was used as currency on the dark web and instrumental in high-level drug and weapons deals, for example. Uh, some countries have outright banned crypto for reasons like this. Does that not bother you or is what I'm describing in the past? I... I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, truthfully, it, it's not overly bothersome to me. And the reason that it isn't is because there's where there is ill will, there's always going to be a, a means to achieving uh, the, those bad desires, right? So if it's if it's not Bitcoin, it's going to be something else. Um, the in in terms though of you know mass adoption, we're we're starting to see that it's not there yet. I'm not trying to say that. Uh, cryptocurrency is today because it's definitely not. But I don't think that we would have all of the large institutions funneling billions of dollars into purchasing up cryptocurrency market caps. To we, we wouldn't be seeing that today if there wasn't some sort of value proposition for purchasing it. And also, they wouldn't be purchasing it if they thought that there was an extreme risk that the government was going to seize it all and make it worth nothing. Uh, I I, so I think that there is a future in cryptocurrency. I don't have the foresight to say exactly what that future is. Uh, but when I, you know, the, the idea of surrounding yourself with people smarter than you in the room, uh, you know, I, I look, I look at the financial institutions. I look at Tesla. I look at all of these organizations and I do not have the hubris to think that I'm smarter than all of them. But when I see all of them starting to head in the same direction, is there risk? Absolutely. I'm not saying that there's not. And is there potential that cryptocurrencies are misused? Absolutely. Anyone would be foolish to say otherwise. But, you know, there, there are companies now that specialize in tracking the public ledger to identify people that are using cryptocurrencies for criminal activities. I, I talked earlier about how the blockchain is publicly distributed and it's decentralized so that many nodes have it. 
Well, you can store that ledger, right? You could sign up to be a node that's mining for Bitcoin or for any of the cryptocurrencies out there, and you can see that public ledger. That's why it's public to, to build trust. If you, let's say that Art, you bought something with Bitcoin that was highly illegal, mm -hmm. uh, and then a year later, you use Bitcoin with the same account to purchase something that can be tied to you, that, that's a way that they can analyze the blockchain and say, well, we, you know, there's nothing identifying in the person that purchased the illegal machine guns, mm -hmm. but a year later they used it to buy a Tesla. And we can now track that to the license plate and take it back through the registration. We can identify the person. There are companies out there that specialize in that type of work today. And I, and I think that those types of things, while not foolproof, they're starting to build a lot more trust in cryptocurrency as a legitimate means of exchange. Oh, damn. I was hoping to buy those illegal, fully automatic weapons on the dark web. So you're saying that, that those days are over. <laughs> I, I I am not predicting one way or the other. Uh, I, I know that there are cryptocurrencies out there that can be used in a completely shielded way. Uh, people have been trying to build really complicated cryptographic algorithms that make it so that you still have the distributed ledger without anyone's ability to actually see the distributed ledger. Mm. So I'm, I'm not saying that it's foolproof. Um, but it, like I said, I don't think that we would be having the mass adoption that we're starting to see if it was as troubling as it may have been four or five years ago. Mm. Well, that's good. I mean, that's, that's good, at least for law abiding citizens, that's for sure. But are you concerned at all about another crypto bubble happening like what happened in 2018? I mean, that was pretty massive. That's certainly something that's on my radar. I, I'd be lying again if I said that it wasn't. Um, but I don't know that it will be as extreme as it was before. The reason that I say that again is partially because of the mass adoption that we discussed earlier. The These institutions... They, you know, if, if there was a big sell-off and we went from, I think today, Bitcoin was floating around an all-time high of $62,000 per token. Let's say that that crashes over the course of two weeks. Uh, you know, it's, I don't think we're going to see, I think it was an 84% loss on Bitcoin in that 2017, 2018 crash. I, I would, I would predict that it's not nearly as low because these big institutions, they have the capital to, to eat it up when the price drops. And so, could it pop? Will it pop? Probably, right? It's still very highly volatile. But I, one thing that I, I don't know if it's on your radar, Art, is the carbon footprint of Bitcoin compared to a lot of other cryptocurrencies. And my prediction related to the next bubble that's inevitably going to pop. The question isn't if it pops, it's how far it drops after it pops, right? The prediction that I have is that Bitcoin, because of its massive carbon footprint, is not going to recover nearly as well as a lot of the altcoins that are coming into popularity. I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with that. Well, no, I Bitcoin. To, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think a lot of people even understand how, how does a currency have a carbon footprint? Certainly. So I talked earlier about how the, to build the blockchain, you have to have multiple computers hooked up to the network, right? Okay. And they are all storing that blockchain. Well, to, to add a block to the blockchain, they are all of the computers at the same time are using processing power to solve cryptographic equations. And the stronger your processing power is, 
the higher your hash rate is. That's what they refer to it. And the higher your hash rate, the more likely your computer is to be the one that solves that equation because it can run more lines of code per second, right? So, so the game, if you are trying to mine for Bitcoin, is to have the strongest computing power possible. Well, that mm. requires electricity. And so unless you're using a renewable energy source, the, the, the thing that you are trying to do is get your energy as cheaply as possible so that you can then recognize the highest profit margin when you're rewarded for your mining efforts with Bitcoin. And there are other proof-of-work cryptocurrencies out there that operate in a similar way. But there are also other cryptocurrencies that operate on different standards, such as proof-of-stake, and they require some level of processing power, but a small fraction of a percentage of what's required for Bitcoin. I, I don't know the exact numbers offhand, but I think that Bitcoin represents something like a top 10 or 20. Like if it was a country, it would be in the top 20 uh, countries in the world for carbon footprint. Mm. And so I just think that, you know, looking forward when the value of Bitcoin drops and it's not worth it to keep buying those new computer parts, it's not worth it to keep paying for all of the electricity people are going to start looking to their options that are more profitable. Interesting. So it's almost like this nascent technology is going to run into the brick wall of the environmental movement. And because if there's one thing I've been hearing a lot about over the last 10 or 15 years, in addition to cryptocurrency, it is reducing carbon footprint. So how interesting that, it that at least Bitcoin looks like it's gonna not succeed because of that. I I honestly did not know until this moment that that was even a factor, which is is fascinating. So yeah, for this medium to continue and thrive, it's going to have to be much more environmentally responsible. Yes, I, I absolutely agree. And I, there aren't a lot of people talking about the, the carbon footprint of Bitcoin outside of the crypto community. Mm. But it's just one of those things where when you think about what are some of the big priorities of the world, right? Regardless of your political leaning, I think that a lot of people recognize that taking care of the environment is something that we need to do. And if you're looking for a long-term solution to developing a digital currency that has those instant transactions with very, very low fees that we talked about, we're, we're at the early stage still where you know the, the U.S. government hasn't decided what they're going to use as a digital currency. Mo most countries do not have an official digital <laughs> currency, right? And so you know, if, if you were going to set it up, why would you set it up with something that requires such large carbon footprint when it's a very easy win to, to set it up in a much more environmentally friendly way? Now, again, I don't want to go too far out of your expertise and all, but why are certain countries banning cryptocurrency? Do you know? I mean, is it, it, it probably is not because of the environmental factors. Is it because it's just a competition to their central currency, wherever they may be? I think so. And I'm flattered to hear my knowledge of cryptocurrency referenced as expertise. So I will <laughs> mark this down in the books as one point for me. Um, but it, yeah, I, I think you're right on art. The reason that you see countries like India, which is actually one of the, uh, by capita, one of the largest 
producing uh, countries of cryptocurrency, and, and that's by capita. I think just by total volume, I believe that they're number one. If, if India were to ban cryptocurrency, not only uh, ownership of cryptocurrency, but also mining of cryptocurrency, that would be a huge blow to, to cryptocurrency because all of those computers would come off the network. It would weaken the blockchain. Uh, there's lots of secondary and tertiary effects that happen out of that. But I, I do think that the, as far as the reason why countries are looking to ban cryptocurrency is because it represents a threat to the government monopoly on what serves as a store of value, mm. right? Uh, you know, you think, you think in the US, I'm no expert on the Federal Reserve, mm. but imagine if even 20% of Americans defaulted to using cryptocurrency to make purchases instead of the US dollar. I have to imagine, it, and the IRS is getting more savvy with this, uh, they're including cryptocurrency on uh, your, your forms that you'll have to fill out for, 20, for your 2021 taxes. But the, I, I don't want to overstep when I say this, I think that losing control of what serves as that store of value uh, is viewed as a threat by the central government, whether it's for normal purposes like buying a Tesla or illicit purposes like the unregistered machine guns that we mm-hmm. talked about, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you did anticipate a question that I was going to ask, which is, does someone have to pay taxes? So you're saying up until now, you've never had to pay, anyone has had to pay taxes in the United States on cryptocurrency? No, up until now, my understanding, and we didn't talk timelines. I've only owned cryptocurrency since early in 2021, Art. So, I, you know, in terms of ownership, I'm only about three to four months into this. I've been reading up on it a little bit longer than that, but it's viewed similar to uh, to any commodity, right? So, if you were to purchase uh, Bitcoin at thirty thousand dollars a coin and then sell it at sixty thousand dollars a coin, you'd be subject to uh, capital gains tax. Right. And so I'm not intimately familiar with what the exact rates are, but I know that if you own it for a year before you sell it, it's taxed at a lower rate than if it's within the year of purchasing. You were always expected to report on anything like that, but I don't think that the systems were really in place to catch it like they were with the stock market and other ways of making money through trading. Hmm. Interesting. So this is, it is, it almost sounds to me, and I'm being highly speculative here, but I could see what's happened in other countries, i.e. the competition and the threat to the government in a lot of ways happening in this country. I mean, it may not have gotten to this point yet, but for my cursory research and you know, kind of indirect research over the years, reading stories and such. I've always been of the belief that the U.S. government is probably not taking this seriously yet. And it's going to be interesting, in my opinion, in during the Biden administration and beyond, if this starts to mount some kind of challenge that there's going to be like kind of a clamp down, for example, on investing and, and whatnot. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. There is an interesting case that is in the courts right now between the SEC and Ripple. Ripple's token 
or sorry, Ripple's ticker is XRP. I think that uh, the case was filed about two years ago, and it's been you know an ongoing litigation cycle. And recently, Ripple won a motion to have the SEC, uh, through the means of discovery, uh, share their documents, you know, internal memos, policies everything that they had on their views of cryptocurrency. And so what you're describing, you know, trying to clamp down or, you know, how they, how they view this and the actions they take with or against it. I think that we're going to start, you know, once those documents are made public, that'll certainly give an indication of which way the wind is blowing. Right. And then, you know, aside from that, I think that the the U S government, you know, I'm not going to overstep here. But I, I think that there has to be someone out of the million plus federal employees who is wondering how the U.S. government can take advantage of cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. Mm-hmm. It's always it's been looked at for years through a negative light. I think you mentioned being used on the dark web, and a lot of people are familiar with uh, the Tor website. Uh, Silk Road. There was a movie put out about it recently. Yep. A lot of people focus on it in that light, but there are a lot of ways that. Any country, not just the United States, could benefit from using blockchain to create their own digital currency. So I know that you are a recent investor, and I like being able to probe that this is a new part of your financial journey in lots of ways. But And you're not a clairvoyant or medium in any kind of way, at least as far as I know. But in your... Best estimation from what you've been learning 50 years from now, what role could cryptocurrency play in our world? That is very difficult to say. I, 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 the only thing that I think I can say for certain art is that it will be there. Um, you know, I, I don't know if some of the large corporations that exist today will be around in 50 years. But I'm highly confident that cryptocurrency will not only exist in 50 years, that it will be one of the dominant forms of uh, exchanging value and you know goods for services, that kind of thing. It's the the real question is, you know, out of the hundreds of different cryptocurrencies that exist today, we talked about how some are simply a store of value like Bitcoin that simply records the transactions on the blockchain. And then there are other cryptocurrencies that are solving real-world problems. I think that the cryptocurrencies that are solving real-world problems have have a much higher potential for still being around in 50 years. Now, they might look different, right? Amazon today doesn't look like Amazon looked when it started. Uh, it, it grew and it took in different capabilities, and it's probably going to continue to grow and change and evolve. Sure. It would be very naive of us to think that what we have today is cryptocurrency is what we're going to have in 50 years is cryptocurrency. I mean, is it possible that in like we have ATMs and in various places, is there right next to an ATM going to be some kind of portal that people can make purchases this way or, or access um, the ledger? I mean, is that, is that sort of a, a doable concept? It's certainly a doable concept, but I don't know that we would need ATMs. I, I think 50 years in the future, 
Personally, I, I don't know if there's going to be much of a need for paper cash. So what would we need the ATMs for? We would already have devices like phones or whatever we're using in 50 years uh, that, that would be able to move between cryptocurrencies, transfer payment. We're already seeing that at a, a lot of retail locations, right? You can go to a 7-Eleven and you can tap your phone to, to make a payment instead of having, having to even pull out a credit card anymore. Sure. And so... You know, 50 years from now, the, the the possibilities are endless, right? You could have the chip in the wrist and you can use that, to, you know, paired up with Neuralink, which is hooked into your brain to transfer <laughs> money to a friend by tapping wrists or similarly uh, by, you know, clicking a few things into a phone or a device, sending money around the world. Hmm. It does sound like the future is here and the future could be crypto anyway. Greg Schaefer, I look forward to continuing to hear about your cryptocurrency investment journey. It is a fascinating one, uh, an early one, of course. And I do thank you for joining me today in the Nexus. Art, I really appreciate you having me as someone who's been a very longtime listener and uh, talked with you in depth about the episodes. Thrilled to be here and look forward to continuing the conversation. We do greatly appreciate the behind the scenes efforts you have done to make the Nexus a success. And we will be right back. Is it actually possible that the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C. could become a state? Yes, it is actually possible. For the first time ever, certainly in modern times, the district may enter the Union as the 51st state. As long as I can remember, I've seen the D.C. license plates that in a cutesy and snarky way have taxation without representation as their so-called motto. D.C. is certainly big enough to become a state. At 702,000 residents, it has more people living there than Wyoming and Vermont. If you follow politics, you'll know that Eleanor Holmes Norton is not the congresswoman from D.C., but is called a delegate, which means she has some visibility in Congress, like being able to participate in House committees, but she is not able to vote on anything, like a shadow member of sorts. There's a mayor here named Muriel Bowser who inspires feisty debates about whether she is a visionary or a complete hack, depending on what bar you're drinking at in the district. And there's a city council with various wards that seem to be governing the district reasonably well. In short, except for the peculiar nature of Eleanor Holmes Norton, D.C. is like an autonomous city in many ways, existing as a showpiece of the many fine federal buildings we have here. It does get sticky in that Congress has oversight of the city in ways it does not have over the 50 states. And D.C. residents have to pay federal income taxes, $6.5 billion to be exact. But as they eloquently state on the license plate, those dollars don't translate to a voice in our government. Will that change? Should that change? Two separate and important questions. Next week, the U.S. House will vote on whether D.C. should become a state. The votes are there, reports say, and that in itself is significant. The Democrats in the House are united and want statehood. The prospects are bleaker in the Senate, however, and it will be difficult, if not impossible, to break the Republican-led filibuster against statehood. 
Crazier things have happened, however, and it's within the realm of possibility that some Republicans may vote for statehood. In any case, it's the closest I've ever seen the District of Columbia becoming one of these United States. I'm not sure that D.C. should become a state, though. It was designed to be a unique entity, a place that was not part of Maryland or Virginia, and with a distinctly nonpartisan sheen. Yet more than 90% voted for Joe Biden in the 2020 election there, and as far as I can tell, nothing close to a Republican has ever been elected mayor or to any leadership positions. If D.C. becomes a state, that's an automatic two new Democratic senators and one congressman. In a 50-50 Senate, that's now 52 to 50, and you wouldn't need Vice President Harris to break any ties anymore. Suddenly, city council people would become state senators, and Delegate Norton would become either a congresswoman or a senator, I presume. This entry into the union would tip the scales for the foreseeable future, and maybe for quite a long time, toward the left. Once D.C. becomes a state, the floodgates could open. Puerto Rico has been a long-suffering bridesmaid for a century, and it appears poised to want in on the statehood gravy train. That's a democratic state in the making, too. Who's to say Guam shouldn't be a state, or my favorite, the Northern Marianas Islands? The Federated States of Micronesia already have states in the title, so they're well on their way. Interestingly enough, Puerto Rico and Guam would make better states than D.C. would. These island territories are more in line with how Alaska and Hawaii entered the Union than D.C. is. Make no mistake, the Founding Fathers never conceived of the District of Columbia to become a state. We can revise history all we want, we do it with the Second Amendment, but in this area residents' opinion, D.C. is fine enough as it is. If you want a voice in federal policy, move to Virginia or Maryland, or West Virginia if you're feeling spicy and like Amtrak. But adding a state just because it will increase your power is bad business, no matter what side you are on. And that's why the Democrats are doing it. That's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. Check out my new newsletter at artswift.substack.com. That's artswift.substack.com. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. We'll see you next time and be well. Be well.